The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. We begin with Robinhood's highly anticipated public debut on the NASDAQ today. The stock is down 6% right now. It was down more than 10% just a couple of moments ago. It was also briefly positive by 3% or so, so it's been swinging around. Again, it priced at $38 for this IPO. A lot of those shares were going to retail investors who use the app. So at the open today, other than when it briefly turned positive, they would be underwater on those trades right now. Robinhood pricing at 38 also was the low end of the range, which was indicated as high as $42. This all values the company in the neighborhood of $30 billion or so as we watch the trading activity this afternoon. Let's get the very, very latest on this now with Leslie Picker, who is at the NASDAQ where she's been all morning long, but she's now alongside Nelson Griggs. Uh, They scored a big one here with Robin Hood. He is president of the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. Leslie? Hey, Kelly, thank you so much. As you can see, that share price has been trading lower pretty much since it opened. Very high volume out of the gate for this one, which I think was expected. But just kind of broadly speaking, Nelson, what do you make of some of today's activity? Well, as you mentioned, the volume is actually a bit more than we expected. So we're already at a little over 50 million shares traded, and they offer a little over 55 million. So I think that is pretty, pretty unique. So I guess we just saw, we're seeing a lot more activity than we had expected. Um, with regard to winning this deal, yeah. as they say in the listings business, it's usually kind of a battle between the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. Why is it that Robinhood chose NASDAQ as its listing destination? Well, we are having a pretty good run anyway this year uh, on the competitive nature. We have about 70% of operating companies choosing NASDAQ. Um, with Robinhood, we've known them for years. Um, we try to develop partnerships long in advance. There's a lot that you can imagine we could be doing with Robinhood. And they've been a good partner to us. We've been a good partner to them. And I think they just naturally felt that it was right home for them. Execution risk is always, you know, a focus, of course, for listing venues such as the NASDAQ on day one. Um, You know, people have made kind of a a comparison between Facebook with the retail allocation of 25 percent as well as Robinhood. Its retail allocation is quite high as well. Um, In terms of kind of the execution, were you guys running trials for this one in anticipation of that heavy volume, in anticipation specifically of the retail orders, which, of course, each of them do tend to be much, much, much smaller than the institutional orders. Sure. The complexity of IPOs gets greater when you have more orders, not necessarily volume, but orders. And we did anticipate high retail uh, participation. So we did we, we test for every IPO. We test weekly. We've done well over 1,000, almost 2,000 IPOs since Facebook. Uh, if you think back to Coinbase, Airbnb, very large deals. So execution risk wasn't really, uh, we think about it all, every day, all day, but was not a concern for us. All right. Kelly has a question back in studio. I, d- I do, Leslie. Thank you. Um, and Nelson, I guess my question, I don't know if it's one that you can answer, but people are joking a little bit now about whether Robinhood should have chosen the SPAC route or one of the myriad other options that's now available to go public. Uh, any thoughts on why the traditional IPO route was so appealing to them? Um, and, and again, I mean, what would you say to investors who might be holding the shares right now, like retail public or otherwise, who are disappointed that it's trading lower? Is there any anything you'd say to them? Well, uh, great two-part question. Uh, I'll look at, look at the first one. So I think we, we, we talk to private companies every single day. 
And they love the fact there's optionality with uh, the SPAC market, with the traditional IPOs. We're seeing more direct listing these days. So I still say there is a, uh, a lean towards the traditional IPO if companies are already well down that path, which obviously Robinhood was. So it is still the, 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 the primary choice for companies going public today. And I, I do think we're going to see that be fairly consistent. Although, you know, even Monday we had Lucid go public through a SPAC. So we, we are seeing, you know, activity on both sides. But um, I think companies have lent, leaned themselves towards the, the IPO. Um, I think when you look at uh, one-day performance, uh, I, I have been in this business for a little over 20 years, and a lot of times the, the day one performance is clearly not indicative of where the stock may be in, in a week or maybe a month or two. So I think you have to l- love the, the long-term story of, of Robinhood, democratizing access to, to capital for or investing for uh, a lot of the retail investors. So I think if they believe in that and the mission, the opportunity they have in front of them, they want to be long-term holders, but everyone makes their own decisions on that. You mentioned that investors are leaning more toward the, IP, the traditional IPO process as opposed to maybe a SPAC or a direct listing. Um, what do you make of today's activity? Does that send a signal to people who may have been considering the IPO process, the traditional IPO process, to say, well, actually, maybe I'd prefer to do a direct listing or a SPAC because you do get a little bit more in terms of price certainty with a SPAC. And then with the direct listing, you, you don't have the same kind of you know price at this point trading this way on day one. It's just an auction. Yeah, you, you, you could probably go through the pros and cons of each in a lot, a lot of detail. You mentioned one with the SPACs having some price certainty, but there's also other factors of the IPO that are more attractive. I say as it look to the fall, as long as the markets hold up, we have a, a, an amazing pipeline of companies that are going to go public uh, both routes. But um, I, I'd say it really is an individual company decision. And we've had so many IPOs here do so well, as in addition to you know, some that may have had a, a, a choppier debut. So I really think it's every company makes that call, and they do on a variety of factors. And I think, again, I, I go back to companies having that optionality is what we continue to hear. They love that, the fact there's different methodologies go public today and more unique ways to tap the public markets. Who doesn't like optionality? Optionality is good. Yeah. Uh, speaking of optionality, Kelly also has a question. Just a couple of quick questions on, on sort of the events of today, this afternoon, Nelson. One is, uh, for those asking, why aren't people wearing masks kind of tightly gathered in the space as a uh, crowd around the computer? The second is, I still think you need a better TV shot for that, you know, the, the crowded around the computer. You know, I, 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 I don't know. It's an aesthetic comment. But anyway, uh, your thoughts, please. Another two-part question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I would say that the, the first one, so we, we do um, look at the uh, data around, around COVID and what the restrictions are, and we you know, adhere to all of the, the guidelines that we are receiving. Um, so I think we, we have obviously seen a, a bit of a, a change here in the last handful of weeks. So um, we have a management call, quite honestly, almost on a daily basis that, that reviews that and understands how we stick with the appropriate guidelines and we will do the right thing you know, all the time in conjunction with what the, the guidelines are and, and also making sure the companies are comfortable with um, how, how we are you know, bringing folks together here. Um, there's been a big uptick in companies wanting to come in, which is terrific, but we also want to uh, do it safely. Let's, let's talk about that big uptick in companies that want to come in just kind of broadly as a, a characterization of the yeah. market as a whole. Um, because you know, we looked at a statistic yesterday and we were talking about this on our air, the fact that of the biggest IPOs this year, those that have raised more than $2 billion, all of them are underwater mm-hmm. as of their first day of trading. Um, obviously, this kind of is the, the seventh of the six IPOs, yeah. or of the seven total IPOs raising yeah. more than $2 billion underwater. What does that do to the IPO market? Are you starting to feel more of a chill uh, effect take place? Are you starting to see the window kind of close a little bit? Yeah. 
I would say you know, that the buy side does look at the performance of current deals or previous deals, how they've done to give them some indication of do they want to participate in IPOs. Um, I'd say the last, this year has been a little softer uh, compared to the broader markets than we've seen in the past. So I think they look at it on a deal by deal basis, but in general, we'd love to see a nice healthy return for uh, you know, the average of IPOs, keep it IPO market you know, as steady as it has been. But there's a bit of fatigue as well. So I mentioned 460 IPOs on NASDAQ. Um, I think we will see a pause here in August, next handful of, of, uh, of weeks. But we do have a very full calendar for September, October. So I think you know, time will tell, but uh, at the end of the day, we'd love to see a nice increase over the averages. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the COVID variant or the Delta variant yeah. does, does there. Uh, Cal, you had another question? Yeah, let's just close, Nelson, with the following. We're asking all, you know, all the executives that we're going to encounter about this as, as well. So final thought, as we've spoken about uh, COVID and this and that, what are your plans for kind of having people back to the office full-time, requiring vaccinations or not, requiring uh, masks or not, you know, requiring people to come back to work? What's your philosophy uh, here, and has it changed in the last week or two? I would say there's a lot more dialogue in the last week or two. We are looking at a post-Labor Day uh, return to office in a bit more of a hybrid in- environment, uh, depending on the roles you have at NASDAQ. It is a very role-dependent. Um, but we think about not only our, our employees, but also the companies coming into NASDAQ. And I, I would say the last few weeks with, with new data, uh, we are looking at that again on a daily basis and making sure we can be as safe as we possibly can. Um, so it's really a combination of, uh, of things, but we are looking at a, a post-Labor Day a return to the office. And that hasn't changed? That has not changed, no. Okay, understood. All right. Thank you so much, Nelson, for your time this afternoon. Leslie, thank you very, very much for bringing that to us. Thanks Leslie for Leslie Picker me. with NASDAQ's president. Let's dig further into Robinhood and whether this debut, uh, what it reveals about the current IPO market, maybe market sentiment more broadly. Joining me is Dan Primack. He's the business editor at Axios. All right, so Dan, Robinhood shares are down about 5% right now. Um, what's going through your mind? I mean, I, you know, it's funny that Nelson talked about there being some IPO fatigue. What I think we're seeing is that investors are really treating each company very individually and very separately, right? Because we have Duolingo goes public yesterday. It does extraordinarily well. It's off a little bit today, but it does great yesterday. Today, you were supposed to have something called Clarios, which is this battery maker. That was also a huge IPO. It was going to raise about $1.7 billion. They pulled it this morning, or at least postponed it. They said, quote, market conditions. So really, this isn't about lots of IPOs all doing well or all doing badly as a bucket. It seems very company specific. We also had Traeger debut today. Last check, the shares are up about 20%. Yes, that's the grill company. We've talked about it and Weber uh, listing a couple of weeks back. So, you know, there are obviously, you could look at this market and say, well, that's a great indication of one that's going off pretty well. Robinhood, Dan, I also wonder if its timing comes as companies are reporting a little bit of pandemic hangover. You know, we had UPS down big this week as volumes are flattening out. Robinhood, you could argue, is a pandemic trade. Is this timing just working against it to some extent? Even though Delta's back, but there's just this sense that this is not anything like what it was, obviously, in the depths of 2020. It may be. I mean, for starters, we should realize, yes, Robinhood is not, you know, this blockbuster IPO right now. It's not It's not having a huge pop and it's down from where it priced the shares. That said, it is still worth a lot more. The public markets have validated the private market va- valuations from, you know, just earlier this year and then some. So, in ge- and it did raise, you know, $1.8 billion or something. That's really important. I, I think the bigger question for Robinhood is people, I think, are a little confused about, or not confused, are concerned about what the business is going to be, say, in a year from now. So, for example, a huge amount of its revenue comes from payment for order flow, which mm-hmm. has been you know discussed and we've discussed before. There is talk from the SEC, from Gary Gensler, from Congress about changing, limiting payment for order flow, and and you know even Robinhood has talked about maybe becoming more of a market maker. 
Well, th- those could be very big fundamental shifts to the business. And then there's obviously the crypto piece. When, when you look at their crypto assets, how much of that was driven by Dogecoin? And no one knows where that's going to be in a year. So, so I think there's some, you know, Traeger is going to be making grills in a year. People aren't necessarily sure what Robinhood will be in a year. That's a great point. So let's also talk about the pricing uh, and the differences in this IPO versus some of the others. Um, there was some sort of talk in the market that they were trying to price it low to make sure that they had this nice one-day pop and retail would participate in that. And interestingly, Leslie, who we just spoke with, was reporting that even the retail share was not um, – they didn't see demand come in as strong as they might have thought. So I think they were offering 20 to 35 percent of the shares to retail. And maybe it was on the lower end of that, which is where the real demand came in. And again, the retail public who they're trying to sort of, you know, specify here is still upset with them about what happened at GameStop. They remember the outages last year. You know, they, you know we, we often talk about Robinhood like it's a proxy for the Reddit trade. That's not necessarily the case. No, and it's interesting. If you look at if you look at Reddit and you look at some of these message boards, Robinhood is being savaged. In fact, it, it seems that some of these folks are taking some great glee in this IPO not going as well as Robinhood wanted. And you said the GameStop stuff last year. It's GameStop stuff from six months ago. It, it's recent. It's really recent. And you're right. I, I think just because you use Robinhood to buy and sell stocks doesn't mean you ne- don't necessarily want to you know take a shot at them. A lot of us use products and we don't particularly love the maker of those products, that might be true in this case. I also think if they were the only ones still offering commission-free trading, that is a huge competitive advantage. Obviously, a lot of the rest of the space has caught up to them. They do have a very impressive, easy-to-use app, which is why they get critics like Charlie Munger, you know, all the rest of uh, Scott Galloway, who say it's too too addictive, it encourages the wrong kind of trading. So even where they most succeed, they have critics uh, you know, of the app interface that they've designed. And you wonder who might be waiting in the wings, maybe seeing what happens with the pay-for-order flow model, but, you know, is even a well-designed app a, a moat in the long run? I, I don't know if it's a moat. I mean, the question is, what does Robinhood do next in terms of innovation? And, and I think kind of on the bull case of that, you'd say, well, they were ahead of everybody else on not just no-fee trading, but also on the UI, on the interface. So, you know, they, they were the smartest guys in the room to a certain extent. They saw what was coming next and maybe they can, you know, do that again. And I think that would be, I think that would be the bull case on this when it, when it comes to that. All right. Traeger will still be making grills. We don't know about Robinhood. That's my line of the day. Dan, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Dan Primack of Axios. Don't go anywhere. Still ahead, we'll speak about Molson Coors. The shares are higher after their earnings beat. And the CEO will join us to talk about the quarter, his heart seltzer strategy, and how Delta is impacting their business. Plus, Nikola founder Trevor Milton is charged with lying about, quote, nearly all aspects of the business, unquote, to bolster stock sales. We're going to take a closer look at this case a little bit later on. The exchange is back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Is Robinhood about to turn positive again? The shares are down less than 2% right now, back over $37. Remember, it priced at $38. Uh, we'll continue to watch it. Only opened a little over an hour, maybe about an hour and a half ago, so still getting its bearings. Meantime, Molson Coors delivering a strong earnings beat this morning and posting its best top-line growth in more than a decade. Shares are bumpy after they warned of rising transportation and packaging costs. The company also discontinued production of its Coors Light Seltzer in the U.S. to focus on Topo Chico and Vizzy brands. Joining me now is Gavin Hattersley. He is the CEO of the Molson Coors Brewing Company. Gavin, welcome. It's great to have you. And, and tell us what's going on with the uh, transportation costs. Well, thanks very much for having me, Kitty. Look, I mean, transportation costs have been tight for the whole of uh, the whole of this year, frankly. Um, you know, and uh, we 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 do hedge some some elements of that, so we do have some cost certainty as as, as regards uh, transportation costs. But just like everybody else in the industry and anybody else using um, over the over the road haulage, it's it, it has been tight. Yeah, so tight, you know, gets to the point where, you know, we've obviously seen things get extreme as fuel shortages in some airports and that kind of thing because there's a shortage of truck drivers and prices are way up. So is this an issue where you kind of mention it to the side and say, okay, we might have to, you know, make a little bit of changes? Or at what point does it become, you know, a much bigger problem that has to be resolved and rethinking how your product gets around the country and doesn't totally eat into profit margins? Well, we do that all the time, Kelly. We do look at the most efficient and effective way to get our to get our, our our brands and our beers out to our distributors. So whether that's over the road or whether it's uh, by rail, uh, we do focus on the most cost effective, cost efficient, and and quickest way, frankly, to to get it to to our distributors. And and you know, with with the tightness in the in the freight market, uh, that's certainly in, an area that we that we're putting a lot of emphasis on. All right, let me ask you about hard seltzer, which had been this huge hit product for the past couple of years, but we saw uh, Boston Beer doing uh, pretty poorly in the last couple of weeks on missing some seltzer trends. You guys have discontinued Coors Light seltzer. What's going on there? Well, Kelly, this is no surprise to us. I mean, we've been saying for almost a year now that we didn't see that the that the hard seltzer uh, category would grow at the, at, at the meteoric rates that it was growing. And uh, so this is no surprise for us. Uh, from our perspective, uh, we, we launched a number of, of hard seltzers in the U.S. market, and we've got clear, two clear winners uh, in Vizzy and in Topo Chico hard seltzer. So, you know, in order to prioritize and focus and put all our, our investments and efforts behind our, our two clear winners, uh, that led us to the decision to, to um, in the U.S., um, stop uh, producing Coors Hard Seltzer. I would tell you that up in Canada, Coors Hard Seltzer is doing really, really well. It's gaining double-digit share in, in some retail, big retail outlets in Canada. So it, it, it will continue in that market. Oh, it's fascinating. I'd love to know what accounts for the, the differences in taste between the two countries. But let me ask you about how much longer you think the seltzer trend will continue. Um, in this, we were, when we were speaking about this the other day, uh, people were asking, well, what's next? You know, if that category is cooling off, what comes on its heels? Do we know yet? Well, from our perspective, the seltzer category is is here to stay, and and we've also been saying for quite some time now, whether it's growing ten or twenty or forty percent, it's still the fastest growing segment in 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 our space, and it's good for the beer industry, and it's surely good for our overall portfolio. I mean, we in the second quarter we had our, our largest share of our of, of revenue in our above premium space, and and the seltzers certainly played a a, a big part of that. So. It's here to stay. From an innovation pipeline uh, point of view, we've got a really robust uh, pipeline of innovation 
coming next year and in the, and in the years beyond. Probably too soon to tell you about that just yet, but uh, we've, we've got some exciting ideas. Interesting. Uh, well, again, I would love to know. But let me ask you about COVID. Um, obviously, we've seen some major companies, major tech companies, delaying their return to work or trying to figure out whether to require vaccinations and that kind of thing. What are you guys thinking? Well, from the day one, really, Kelly, our focus has been on the health and, and safety of our, of our employees. And we've also put particular emphasis on the medical experts and what the CDC guidance is. And so that's what's uh, leading our decision-making process. We certainly are encouraging vaccines and uh, that all of our employees uh, get the vaccine. But at this point in time, we haven't mandated it. Can you give me a little hint on what's in your product pipeline? <laughs> I can't do that, Kelly. <laughs> well, I appreciate you letting me ask a, a couple of times and for joining us today, Gavin, to talk about the quarter and the trends. It's always good to see you. Thank you very much for having me. Gavin Hattersley is the CEO of Molson Coors. And coming up, we're going to speak with another CEO over at Kimco Realty, the shopping center week, which is reporting strong earnings and moving into the supermarket world even further today. Shares are up 4%. Is this a sign that commercial real estate has made a full recovery from the depths of the pandemic? We will definitely ask. As we head to break, let's check on shares of Robinhood, which are down 1.5%. They have turned positive earlier towards uh, when they first opened for trading. They were up about 3% at one point before falling more than 10%. So they've come off the lows as well, down about 1%. We'll see if they are positive by the time we're back from this break. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We've been squarely focused on Robinhood's IPO, which at last check was underwater. However, the broader markets are actually at all-time highs. Today, the Dow is up two-thirds of a percent, bang on same percentage as the S&P 500. The Nasdaq is trailing slightly. It's up a third of one percent as well. But again, when at the open, pretty much every major average you see here was at a record high. Here are some of the other non-Robinhood movers this hour, including shares of Traeger. I mentioned this a moment ago, but they are surging 28 percent now in their debut on the NYSE. Man, my neighbor used to cook so great on the Traeger. I miss them. Uh, Rob, come back and cook for us. Anyway, they did price their IPO at the high end of the range at 18 a share. They opened at 22. The current valuation is at least three, but that might have even been at the open price of 22. So we're talking about at least a $3 billion market cap, but still much smaller than Robinhood. Align Technology is also doing really well today at a new all-time high and on pace for the best day since February. This is the maker of Invisalign, remember. They reported a billion dollars in quarterly revenue for the first time ever, and the shares are up 8%. Also, shares of Crocs are in the green again today. In fact, they're on their longest monthly winning streak on record. 12 consecutive months of gains, up 260% during that time. This is $136 stock right now, adding 4% today. Now over to Christina Parts and Evelis for our CNBC News update. Christina? Hello, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this fine hour today. The Biden administration saying it will allow a nationwide ban on evictions to expire Saturday. The White House actually says Biden would have liked to extend the ban Ben, but says his hands are tied by a Supreme Court ruling. Biden now calling on Congress to take action to protect vulnerable renters. On the news, full coverage of President Biden's expected vaccine requirements for federal workers tonight at 7 Eastern. 
In Wisconsin, more than 40,000 customers still without power after severe storms ripped through parts of the state overnight. Powerful winds uprooting trees and causing widespread damage to businesses and homes. Switching gears at the Olympics, Novak Djokovic sorry, cruising past Japan's key, uh, Kai Nishikori in straight sets. Like These names are great. I can do it. The win puts the world's top men's tennis player in his third Olympic semifinal and keeps hopes alive that he could become only the second player ever to win the Golden Slam. That's all four Grand Slam tournaments and an Olympic gold. Mic drop. And a pioneer of info commercials has unfortunately died. Ron Popiel made a science of enticing customers with pitches for items they never knew they needed. Everything from kitchen gadgets to pocket fishing rods and spray on hair to cover bald spots. Ron Popiel was 86 years old. Kelly, back to you. All right, Christina, thank you very much. Christina Parts and Evelis. Coming up, we'll check on shares of Robinhood down 1.5% or so right now. Get reaction from traders on the floor of the NYSE and whether Robinhood's debut marks the top in the red-hot IPO market. We're back in a minute. the exchange. Robinhood's market debut, one of the most highly anticipated of the year. Maybe not exactly what the company was hoping for. The stock down about 1% right now, opened below where it priced, did briefly go positive by about 3%, and still the day is young. Let's bring in Bob Bassani and Michael Santoli, who are down at the NYSE, with some more thoughts. Bob, what are you hearing on this one? Well, I, I have not, and I've been covering IPOs for 24 years. It's been a long time since I've had this much commentary, pro and con. People seem very passionate about this one. They either love it or they hate it. With that said, there's a lot of obvious concerns that people have. People even telling me, look, the, look at how dependent they are on trading revenues or what's going on. $30 billion valuation, Kelly, dependent on trading. You better hope trading uh, stays very, very high. Then you've got the whole issue about the regulatory situation. They're very exposed to payment for order flow, to gamification. They're exposed to crypto. Gensler has said he's going after all of this thing. This seems to be like a very serious risk that people have on investing in. And then they keep saying, oh, we're unique. But I see tons of competition. I see SoFi. I see Fidelity and Vanguard and Schwab out there. Schwab bought Ameritrade. Morgan Stanley bought E-Trade. There's certainly a lot of people interested in buying companies uh, like this one. And finally, you know, everybody makes a thing about their $22 million users. That's nice. But the assets are pretty small. You know, it's $4,500 average user there. Look at Vanguard's got $8 trillion in assets under management. BlackRock's got $9 trillion. They've got $81 billion over there. So it's nice to have 22 million users. I think that's a great metric for them. But they're going to have to grow that darn fast to get anywhere near Charles Schwab's leak, Kelly. Sure. And Mike, how important is it that they close in the green versus in the red or slightly in the red versus down 10 percent? We know how definitive these narratives can become. What, what do you think is significant yeah. here in terms of the trading activity that you've seen so far and, and how it closes? I don't think it necessarily has a tremendous amount of meaning, uh, literally how it closes today, mostly because we already know that this was not a spring-loaded deal where there was a lot of insatiable demand and you were going to get the pop and it was a matter of how much. Uh, so I think the narrative is already set that it basically was relatively soggy demand at this valuation level. but. 
not a disaster. If I go back and look at how Uber was very heavy out of the gate, uh, it did take some time to get its legs under it. It's not been a great performer, but it also didn't take down the market with it when it did fail, even though it was a wildly anticipated and hyped deal. So uh, I do think that it shows you they were a little bit aggressive on the valuation. It was a deal that was sold and not bought. They had very specific kind of cash out needs. They had the people who provided capital early this year, so you've got to go public. And so there was a lot of incentive on the company's part to make sure they got a certain valuation. I think it's reflected here, and, and Bob's right about all the concerns. If there's an upside to that, I think the skepticism is pervasive. Yeah. Everybody is actually kind of looking at it and yeah. saying, yeah, but. Right. There's nothing yeah. in here that suggests irrational markets, Bob, you know, Reddit mania and all and all the rest of it. And you're sitting in front of a no. Traeger IPO that went off today pretty well. So is there IPO fatigue or is there just Robin Hood skepticism? I'll tell you there's a little IPO fatigue because of the disappointment of the performance so far this year. So we've had uh, 260 IPOs, and the number's been great. The amount of value of the money that's been raised, almost $100 billion, that's been great. We're near a record, Kelly. We could hit a record this year in terms of the amount raised. What I don't like is the trading action. 49% of the uh, of the IPOs are above their price. Uh, below 50% are above their IPO price right now. That's very disappointing. We've had first day pops. The average IPO is up, but it's down. The average IPO is down after the first day of trading. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells you they've been getting very aggressive on the pricing. They're pricing too high, and you're getting companies that are people are selling into the high prices immediately upon going public. So I think you're going to get a little bit of what you might call valuation pushback in the second half of the year because people are always look at these numbers. It's down 13% after the first day mm -hmm. of trading. That means your average CNBC viewer who's got to buy in on that first day of trading, they're under water. That's going to get noticed on the street. So I think for people who want to buy IPOs in the second half of the year, maybe you're going to get a little bit better price. Mike, a quick final comment to wrap it up. Yeah, I mean, I, what's fascinating to me is it's a little bit of a Rorschach test, this stock. If it's a brokerage firm and you're comparing it to interactive brokers, which has four times the revenue and is a lower market cap, it doesn't make a lot of sense. If it's a consumer app where you're going to somehow judge it on monthly active users and just as a call option mm -hmm. on the uh, kind of wealth building over time of a very younger generation, then it gets uh, you know a little more substantiated on the valuation front. So we'll see how that storyline evolves as it matures as a public company. Great point. Guys, thank you. Mike Santoli, Bob Bassani down okay. at the NYC. We'll check back in with you soon. We got a few developments in that hack of electronic arts. Eamon Javers has the details. Eamon. Kelly CNBC can confirm that the data stolen from EA Sports and posted on the dark web earlier this week uh, is, in fact, source code to the massively popular soccer video game FIFA 21. This, according to consultants for CNBC uh, at the cybersecurity firm Q6. Hackers posted that uh, data earlier this week. We've been analyzing it and confirmed what it is uh, just today. The stolen data includes Visual Studio project files. Uh, and the consultants at Q6 tell us that the risk here to EA uh, is in terms of piracy and potential cheating in games by people who get access to this source code on the dark web. Now, the hackers involved here are demanding a ransom. They're threatening to release more information uh, that they say that they have stolen from EA. <clears throat> they claim to have user data from the Sims 4 game, uh, and they're demanding payment in less than 45 days. We went to Electronic Arts with this and asked them for their comment. Uh, they, they're saying a couple of things. One is uh, they don't like the idea of ran uh, the term ransomware at all. They say, 
this was an extortion attempt. Uh, so some very strong words here from EA. They also say uh, that they're not particularly concerned about this data being out there on the dark web. They say, we don't consider the amount of source code accessed or a material threat to our games, businesses, or players. So EA is saying, uh, yes, this data may be out there on the dark web, but we don't consider it to be a material threat at this point, Kelly. Back Extortion you. is a big word. Eamon, thank you so much. Eamon Jabbers with the details there. Now we have a news alert on Disney with Scarlett Johansson involved. Julia Borson has this story for us. Julia? Kelly, Scarlett Johansson, the star of Disney's latest Marvel movie, Black Widow, has filed a lawsuit today in Los Angeles Superior Court against Disney. This, according to a report in The Wall Street Journal, um, this uh, lawsuit alleging that her contract was breached when this film that she just starred in, Black Widow, was released simultaneously on Disney Plus for an additional fee at the same time as it was released theatrically. She says that her detail guaranteed an exclusive, her deal guaranteed an exclusive theatrical release and her salary was based in large part on the box office performance of the film. So this really raises a lot of questions about the new simultaneous streaming, streaming strategy, the shortening of windows we've seen a lot of films take um, and a lot of the studios take right now. So it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. We have reached out to Disney for comment. We have not heard back yet, but Kelly, this is really a moment where the whole movie industry is reevaluating how they're going to be making deals with talent and also yeah. how they're going to be releasing films. It's Back fascinating. I would love to know, you know, if she raised this as a concern uh, upon hearing that they were going to stream it, if there was some, you know, attempted a contract negotiation before we got to this point. I, again, can't wait to find out those details as the industry evolves. Julia, thank you very much. Julia Borston. Up next, never mind the growth versus value debate. One strategist says low interest rates lift all boats. Haven't we gotten used to that? He's going to bring us his top four picks next. And tomorrow on The Exchange, Brian Sullivan will be bringing us the CEO of Chevron. Mike Wirth will discuss earnings, price outlook, and so much more. Don't miss it. We're back here in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. On top of Robinhood's public debut, today also marks the busiest day and the halfway point of earnings season. And with a record number of earnings and revenue beats, this season boasts the strongest earnings growth since the fourth quarter of 2009, which was also, of course, uh, coming out of a recession. Estimates for the third and fourth quarters also keep rising. Then again, we just got today's GDP miss. So our opti uh, investors being too optimistic with the direction of the economy and these earnings power of the S&P 500. Here to drill down on this is Jerry Castellini. He is president and chief investment officer of Castle Arc Management. Jerry, it's great to have you. So uh, just an observation, you know, tell me if this makes sense to you, but the way I see it, we hear so much belly aching from corporate America about higher supply and labor and input costs and transportation difficulties. And then we turn around and look at the numbers, and this is like the most amazing earnings ever. Not revenue, earnings. So they have, yeah. you know, they're increasing their profit margins. Well, Kelly, I mean, let's be honest. These guys have to always uh, put caution ahead of everything they say just to, just to sound good. Uh, but the reality is that GDP report today and the market's reaction to it are spot on. The, all we've seen now is the pushing out of what we were worried at the beginning of the year was, okay, one blast of growth and then rolling back over. Now your, your visibility is being pushed out into maybe 2023 hmm. because you're, you're forcing companies to slow their pace of growth, which would they, they'd prefer all day. And you're allowing somebody to discount stock and, and earnings. You get us now you know, five or six quarters that, that we get to see visibility on. 
Okay, so you're kind of in the camp that looked at it and said, okay, there was inventory drawdown, we're going to need restocking, a slower yeah. pace now means a, a stronger pace then and so forth. So what does this mean for corporate earnings? Okay, so we have a market price as of this morning, as of the open, at all-time highs for all the major averages. But the way that you see it, these earnings uh, are justified. I mean, we spoke yesterday with the CEO of Stiefel, and he said the earning, the uh, trailing operating earnings are at their highest levels since basically the late 90s and the late 1920s. Is that a concern for you? Not at all. In fact, again, we, earnings uh, have been growing systemically for 30 years now uh, on the backs of the, the transition of the economy into service and things that are much more innovation driven. And we're now seeing all those innovations that people have put in place. That's now manifested itself in these, these better than expected earnings. And as I've said before, now you're going to have the, the smooth bathing of the waters of growth for the next five or six quarters to now push back some operational leverage. So it, it may, in fact, be the best of both worlds. Wow. All and, right. And boy. Yeah. No. So there's obviously, you know, the easy thing to do is to sit back and relax about your passive S&P index fund, I suppose. But you also have some picks uh, in this environment you think could do particularly well. They include uh, Conoco, Ford, Microsoft, NVIDIA. Is there a unifying theme there or are there just a lot of different opportunities? So the most unifying theme is until the bond market decides there's a really structural problem with inflation and it wants to value long-term uh, yields at something at one and a quarter to one and a half, uh, you now have the opportunity and it only happens in rare instances of being able to look across the universe of stocks and say, gosh, Conoco is going to throw off 15 to 20 percent of its entire market cap every year uh, at these oil prices. Ford has got really cool. The, the combination of an EV Tesla play inside of a massive cyclical pent up demand for for old internal combustion cars and then move on to the to, you know, to the low risk stuff like the 10 year outlook uh, Microsoft has in their entire suite of product. And then finally, you know, NVIDIA, okay, high multiple. If we had 3% interest rates, that would be a problem, but not now. And their competition is so weak compared to the market they have. So yeah. we get to look both cyclical inflation and, and growth oriented here. And this is a rare opportunity. Yeah, well, you know, on Ford, I just learned the other day, there's some business tax deduction that encourages people to basically go out and buy pickup trucks, like even if they don't need one for business. Just such a classic <laughs> yeah. case, you know, there's demand from Ford for yeah. the uh, traditional F-150, for the all-electric one, for whatever it wants to produce, basically. Jerry, thanks right. so much. We appreciate it. It's good to see you, you today. You bet, Kelly. Jerry Castellini from sure. Castle Arc on this market. Still ahead, Kimco Realty, which owns and operates open-air malls, is reporting a faster-than-expected improving occupancy rate and hiked its 2021 outlook. Good illustration of the trends we've just been discussing. The shares are up nearly 4% today and 43% so far this year. The CEO joins us next. And remember, you can catch this show anytime, anywhere by listening to or following the Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Take a look at shares of Kimco, which are up 3.5%. They had strong earnings. They beat expectations. The shopping center read also raised full-year guidance as operations returned to pre-pandemic levels faster than anticipated. So what does that mean for the future prospects of commercial real estate? Kimco Realty CEO Connor Flynn is here now. Connor, it's good to have you. I don't know if you just heard our last chat, but we were talking about how companies have this kind of surprising earnings power and momentum behind them. Would you consider yourselves one of them, even as Delta spreads? Hey, Kelly, nice to see you. 
Yeah, we're very proud of the quarter we just had. You know, the team has really rallied the Kimco portfolio through this pandemic. And it's really starting to shine a light on the value of last mile retail. Our grocery anchored shopping centers are performing quite well and traffic is back to 2019 levels. And we have a, a real playbook now that we can follow thanks to you know, all the lessons learned through the pandemic. We launched curbside pickup and really the last mile shopping center typically that we own is grocery anchored. And it gives the consumer the way that they want to shop, the optionality that I think is so important to consumers today. Yeah, I probably mentioned this. There's, you have a shopping plaza about half a mile away from you with the Whole Foods in it. And the landscaping bills I, must be crazy because it's always beautifully done. Um, but talk about the traffic trends, the ways in which things are going back to normal and the ways in which you don't anticipate them to. Because I think when we spoke last time, we were talking about investment and making it easier to arrive and leave at your destinations to do things like curbside pickup. Sure. So the way retail has evolved, you know, the shopping center has become in a lot of ways, more ways than one. It, it's really evolved to, to service the customer in, in, in any way they so choose. So if they want to buy online, pick up in store, if they want to use curbside pickup, it's also the ease of returns. All of a sudden, this last mile retail has become more valuable to the retailer as well as the consumer. And we really saw a huge uptick in our occupancy this quarter primarily driven by our anchors. Actually, we were up 70 basis points to 96.9%. And that's the largest incremental quarterly gain we've seen since we started reporting that metric 10 years ago. And so you're seeing the demand coming for the space. And we're in a nice spot in terms of supply and demand. Our pricing power is quite strong, you know, really driven by our leasing spreads. And there's really no new supply on the horizon. So I think it's a nice way to showcase the, the future cash flow growth that we anticipate. You know, obviously your biggest headwind is something you can't really control. It's interest rates because REITs are, you know, utilities are having their best month in a long time. Obviously, REITs have done extraordinarily well this year. It is the flip side of plunging rates. So for people who think this is going to be the new normal, plays like yours, I guess, are pretty attractive. But if we get back towards anything like one and a half, two percent on the 10 year or above, do you adjust your business to that or do you just uh, acknowledge the stock price adjustment that would likely happen? I try and focus on what we can control, and obviously interest rates are, is, is not part of that equation. I think what we look at is the blocking and tackling of our business, and it's quite healthy right now. And when we point to future cash flow growth, the nice part of our business is it, it's pretty easy actually to project out because we've signed so much leasing volume recently that we have you know 300 basis points spread between our physical and economic occupancy, or in other words, $33 million of future cash flow that's waiting to commence rent paying. And so that really gives us a nice tailwind for the future, which really is going to put, a, I think, our foot down on growth. So we've learned basically from your results that the, the local grocery store didn't go away. If anything, it strengthened, even though everyone was ordering groceries online. And as I alluded to, you know, I'm ordering mine online, but I'm picking them up at one of your locations. So I, so I understand that. But who else are these tenants, especially in the post-pandemic world, that are looking for space in your shopping plazas? Can you explain the kind of businesses we should get accustomed to seeing? Sure. You know, it's actually a lot of names that we all love. I mean, Target, for example, has been a, a wonderful operator through the pandemic that is us utilizing their stores exactly as you mentioned in more ways than one. And, you know, utilizing the store as last mile fulfillment and distribution is here to stay. And so you're seeing it with grocery, but you're also seeing it with, with a multitude of retail concepts. And that's why anything touching home is quite strong still, home improvement, home goods. You've got the grocery stores doing quite well off price. So the TJ Maxx fleet of, of flags, Burlington, Ross, um, we've got a lot of, of, of new tenants as well. So most of the e-commerce tenants that started out 
um, in the digitally native world is now looking for growth through brick and mortar. Amazon obviously being the largest with their Amazon fresh grocery store that we just uh, actually opened in, in Bellevue, Washington to lines around the, uh, around the block. So there's, there's a lot of net new demand and retail continues to evolve. And I'm a big believer, obviously, in that last mile retail component that Kimco brings to the table. Very, very interesting. Connor, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Connor Flynn is the CEO of Kimco. And up next, shares of Nikola are dropping today. They're down 60% over the past year, and the founder of Nikola was just charged with lying to investors. The shares are down almost 10% this afternoon. We have details of the indictment and what it means or doesn't mean for the company next. We'll also get a check on Robinhood, open for trading just about two hours ago. It's still in the red. It's down around $36.5 at price of 38. It's a 3.5% drop, uh, but it did turn positive once earlier on. You can see that green spike, and we'll see if it can do it again before the close. We're back in a minute. Welcome back. Trevor Milton, the founder and former executive chairman of Nikola, has been charged with making false and misleading statements to investors. The announcement sent shares lower by about 10 percent this morning. They're currently trading right around there still. It's about $12.80. Phil Abo is here with all the details for us and what happens to the company now. Phil? Kelly, Trevor Milton has just posted a $100 million bond. His first appearance in a federal courtroom in Manhattan has wrapped up. The DOJ is charging him with three counts of fraud. There is also a parallel uh, complaint that has been filed by the Security Exchange Commission. And basically, the three counts come down to this. They say that Trevor Milton lied to investors about Nikola products, including the Badger electric pickup truck, which they say... Look, it wasn't a real truck. It was not even built from the ground up. They basically took F-150 donor vehicles, hit it that it was not really an F-150 underneath it. And that's what they said to investors was the vehicle they were building. Here is the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. We allege in order to drive investor demand for Nicholas stock, Milton lied about nearly every aspect of the business. And you can see she stepped away from the podium there to talk about some of the products that uh, they accuse Trevor Milton of lying about. As you take a look at shares of Nikola, the company has issued a statement essentially saying, look, those charges, they're not against Nikola. He has nothing to do with the company. He's been gone for more than 10 months. Those are charges strictly to Trevor Milton. His legal team has issued a statement saying Trevor Milton is innocent. This is a new low in the government's efforts to criminalize Lawful business conduct. Every executive in America should be horrified. Against Trevor Milton has posted a $100 million bond, Kelly. We'll see how this plays out over the weeks and months to come. A $100 million bond is a humongous number, uh, Phil. So, you know, sure. Secure, question, secured though, the by two they, $40 million properties. Wow, wow. Okay. And clearly he made out quite well from all of this. What about the company now? As you mentioned, I believe, has there been a leadership? A complete changer. I get honestly, I get Nicola and Lordstown confused. Yes. Uh, what's the status with the company and their yes. ability to try and salvage all of this? Well, I mean, they once they bounced to Trevor Milton uh, and he left, I want to say October, November. I don't know the exact date, but it was pretty clear. You know, once the GM deal fell apart, once the Hindenburg research uh, allegations from that firm came out and they said, look, all of this is a house of cards. Trevor Milton left Nicola. And they have spent the last nine months trying to resurrect their business and go forward and say, look, yeah. what Trevor Milton said we were all about, we are not about that. 
Uh, and there have been a few instances where there have been those who have said, look, there's some potential here for this company. But let's be clear. Yeah. They are not involved in any of these allegations. Phil, thank you. Philippo with the latest on Nicola. And that does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.